Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon and English study group where we study the words of the Buddha in this program where students will actually read a book and then come to class with questions. And if you haven't read these books, it's okay because we're actually going to be reading it during our class. So I'd like to welcome all of you, whether you're joining us for the first time or you've been joining us regularly. We're in volume 11, which is titled The Realms of Existence. We're coming up towards the end of this book. We're in chapters 131 through 140. That's what we're going to be studying today. And these are very short chapters. The words of the Buddha sometimes are just a paragraph or two. And then you've got the reference of where that reference is back to the Pali Canon. And you've got the teachings that I'm sharing related to the Buddhist teachings as well. So if you read these books prior to class or you come to class like this and study along with us, then you can really glean a lot of insight because you're studying with the words of the Buddha. It would be very difficult, nearly impossible, possible to get to enlightenment without studying the words of the Buddha. It's the words of a Buddha that is going to be able to help you understand what he taught in order to get to enlightenment. A Buddha is the discoverer, the declarer, and the originator of the path to enlightenment. So it's their teachings that are actually going to lead to enlightenment. Whereas if you were studying all kinds of other things that were written by different people, but they weren't based in the words of the Buddha, then they would lack the penetrating wisdom to be able to help you understand the natural laws of existence and actually get to enlightenment. So this program focuses on studying this book series, The Words of the Buddha, The Path to Enlightenment, Revealing the Hidden, Volumes 2 through 13. And we're coming up towards the end. It's been about a year and a half of studying this book series. And then we're going to start all over again in January. So we've got about another three and a half months of completing book 11, 12, and 13, and then we'll start from the beginning. But this program, you can really join at any time. You don't need to start at the beginning because it only really starts once every year and a half. You can actually join in at any point. But I do suggest that students either take the group learning program at the same time of the Pali Canon and English Study Group, or they take it beforehand and go through that at least once before they join into the Polycan and English study group. Because the group learning program provides a real framework for understanding the path to enlightenment. And in that program, it's a seven-month program. It's restarting about every seven months. And we use this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment, Volume 1. This book, we go chapter by chapter each Sunday, and we also use Wednesdays as well to come together to meditate and answer any questions that you have. 
this Sunday, which is tomorrow, we're going to be studying chapter 22. And then at the beginning of November, we're going to have a two-month period where we're going and having a special series of classes called the Retreat Series. And this Retreat Series is going to be eight individual classes that is going to be content that I taught in the USA this past summer at the Retreat. And these classes are all based on developing and maintaining harmonious relationships. So this retreat series to develop harmony in your relationships will allow you to understand the teachings above and beyond what we already study in the group learning program and in the Polycanon in English study group so that we can specifically look at how to develop healthy relationships in our life because that's a big part of getting to enlightenment is understanding how to eliminate attachments to people who are close to us while still maintaining a relationship or how do we teach our children or how do we practice these teachings in the workplace with coworkers in a professional environment all these different types of things and others you'll see in the retreat series starting in november the way that we start this class is we start with meditation and then we'll do the reading where a student will volunteer in Zoom to read each individual chapter. I'll share teachings on that chapter and then open up to any questions that you have. So I'd like to go ahead and invite you to join us for a brief meditation just to prepare the mind for the class, maybe just like 10 minutes or so. So go ahead and take a position. I usually give just kind of light guidance in this class because people who join this class tend to be a little bit further along in their practice and don't typically need as much guidance. And plus, we don't usually have as much time in this class for guidance and meditation. But go ahead and take your meditation position. And then if you'd like to join along in the chants that I'm going to do, you're welcome to join along or you're welcome to just start establishing your breath and I'll be back with some guidance once I'm done with the chanting. Arato 
you would like to just establish the breath breathing in through the nose and out through the nose just taking a nice gradual natural breath breathing in and out Once the breath is established, start fixating the mind on the sound of the breath. The breath is the present moment. Fixate the mind on the breath, the sound or sensation coming into the nose. Anytime the mind is off the breath, cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. I'm going to be quiet now. Just let you focus on doing the work. Focusing on the breath, the present moment. And cutting off any thoughts that arise. And coming back to the breath. Breathing in. In, out.
We'll move into the study part of our class today, where we're going to be studying Volume 11, Chapters 131 through Chapters 140. Here, this book titled The Realms of Existence, we've already gone through studying the realm of hell, the animal realm, afflicted spirits, the human realm, and the heavenly realm. And then we even studied some chapters related to the cycle of rebirth itself. Now we're moving into some chapters that are essentially about how to get to enlightenment because the goal would be to not exist in this cycle of rebirth. Continuing to exist in the cycle of rebirth means that there's continued discontentedness. These are conditioned feelings of pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and neither painful nor pleasant. And as long as the mind is experiencing conditioned feelings, then the mind is going to be shaken up. And when the mind is shaken up and unsteady, that means it's uncalm. And when it's uncalm, it can't have mindfulness or awareness of mind. It can't have concentration. So therefore, we can't access wisdom and make wise decisions that lead to wholesome results. An enlightened mind is going to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently, no longer experiencing feelings like sadness or anger, 
fear or guilt or any of these other discontent feelings. So the mind will be calm and relaxed, yet attentive and alert. And with that calmness, the mind can have mindfulness or awareness of mind. And with that awareness of mind, you can have concentration or focus and clarity. And then you can have access to wisdom and be able to make wise decisions that lead to wholesome results in your life. This is the reason why we experience all these difficulties and struggles is because we lack wisdom in the unenlightened state. And when there's a lack of wisdom or the inability to access that wisdom, then there's repeated decisions that are made over and over and over again that are unwise and that lead to unwholesome results. So by training the mind to eliminate discontentedness and come to this calm and joyful mental state, then you can just continually make wiser and wiser decisions leading to wholesome outcomes because everything we experience in our life is a result of our decisions. So when we cultivate wisdom in these teachings using the words of the Buddha, then we can make wise decisions that lead to improved outcomes for us. So let me turn over the class to all of you guys, specifically the moderators, where they've organized students to be able to read each chapter. Then I'll share some teachings and then we'll open up to any questions that you guys might have. The way that you ask questions is you put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. The moderators will see those comments and be sure your questions get asked during the class. Or in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions that you like. So I'll go ahead and turn everything over to all of you guys. Okay, I will begin with chapter 131. Abandoning being capable of destroying discontentedness. Monks, without directly knowing and fully understanding form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, also known as choices and decisions, consciousness, without becoming free from strong feelings toward it and abandoning it, one is incapable of destroying discontentedness. Monks, by directly knowing and fully understanding form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, consciousness, by becoming free from strong feelings towards it and abandoning it, one is capable of destroying discontentedness. Monks, abandon desire and craving for form, for feeling, for perception, for volitional formations, for consciousness. Thus, that form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness will be abandoned, cut off at the root, made like a palm stump, obliterated, so that it is no more subject to future arises. All right. Thank you, Rick. Here, the Buddha is talking about what's described as the five aggregates. These are also described as elements or collections. These are the five things that make a living being a living being that if you have these five aggregates then this is a living being so form is the physical form of the body we have this physical form then there's these feelings that enter into the mind then there's perception what a perception is is your kind of beliefs opinions or views the way things seem to be in the world and it may or may not even be true right but the perception of how you perceive things in the world then there's volitional formations, which are choices and decisions that we make. And then there's the consciousness or the actual mind. These are the five aggregates, form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness. This is where you can see that a dog or a cat is a living being because they have all these five aggregates. Or a spider is a living being 
they have all five aggregates. But then you can see something like a tree. This is not a living being. While we may consider plants to be alive and we talk about them as being alive, they're not a living being. They do have physical form, but they don't have feelings, they don't have perceptions, they don't have volitional formations, and they don't have a consciousness. So something like volitional formations or choices and decisions, a tree can't decide, it doesn't like where it's planted and pick itself up, walk down the street and replant itself because it can't make choices and decisions on its own. So that's how you can tell and determine what is a living being and what isn't a living being. Well, in Gautama Buddha's description of the Four Noble Truths, he explains the problem of discontentedness as clinging or craving, this mental longing and strong eagerness and holding on to things. In the group learning program, I describe craving, desire, attachment, and clinging all as one thing, this mental longing and strong eagerness the chasing after the objects of your affection. But in reality, it's actually two separate things. And I usually wait for people to advance a bit more before I explain it as two different things. Craving desire, this is the mind longing and yearning for the objects of its affection, chasing after things, like a wild animal would chase a prey. But clinging is holding on, or attachment is holding on. Right? So there's this mental longing for something where somebody wants to buy a new pair of shoes, then you get it and you get these pleasant feelings and now you cling and you hold on to those shoes because you want them to bring you these pleasant feelings. Or you have this longing and yearning for a wife or a husband or a partner or children and there's this craving and desire to have a partner. And then when you get it, you cling to it and you hold on to it. And what the Buddha explains in the Four Noble Truths is it's this craving and clinging that is essentially causing the discontent mind. And he explains it in other parts of his teachings too, that as long as the mind is longing and yearning for something, and then it's clinging and holding on to it, it's going to cause itself discontentedness. So here in this teaching, he's describing that as long as the mind has desire or craving for form, for feeling, for perception, for volitional formation, for consciousness, where there's this longing and yearning for it, then there's going to be discontentedness. But you need to cut that off. And that's what we're doing in breathing mindfulness meditation, where we're training the mind to be able to easily cut things off and let them go. And you're also training that way with generosity. When you're giving and sharing, you're training the mind to let go. Because what the mind wants to do is it wants to hold on tightly. And the untrained mind doesn't have discipline or control of the mind. So in breathing mindfulness meditation, you're building this discipline or this control so that you're exercising the mind that way two or three times a day in meditation. But then outside of meditation in your daily life, where you see the mind longing and yearning for things, you can cut that off and let it go. And where you see the mind clinging and holding on to things, you can train the mind to let go. This is what's going to bring about the ending of your discontentedness. And the Buddha explains this as part of the Eightfold Path and all of his teachings connect into this. So he's helping you to understand that it's not just generalized craving that's causing discontentedness. It is, but more specifically, it's craving form or feelings. It's clinging to these things. It's craving and clinging to perceptions, volitional formations, or consciousness. Let me give you an example. Let's use this one volitional formations, choices and decisions. Say like two weeks ago, you saw an advertisement for a movie and 
this movie is about to come out two weeks from now and you start building this craving, this longing, yearning to go see this movie. And then as the date gets closer, you call up your friends and you say, okay, meet me at the movies. We would like to go see a movie. I would like to go see a movie. So now you show up to the movies to meet your friends with this longing and yearning to see a specific movie, say Superman, right? And then you show up and you're like, all right, friends, we're all here. Let's go see Superman. I can't wait to see Superman. And your friends are like, mm, we were actually interested to see Superwoman. We weren't interested to see Superman. You're like, no, 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 we've got to see Superman. It just came out. It's the new movie. It's the best movie. We've got to see it right now. There's all these strong feelings that come about because the mind has this craving, this yearning, this longing to see Superman. And your friends are like, we're not interested in that, right? And as long as the mind is clinging and holding on to Superman, it's going to experience this discontentedness. And then there might even be unskillful conduct where you might start speaking hostile or aggressive or bitter with your friends, trying to force them or control them to go see Superman. When in reality, you could either just let go of Superman and be like, all right, well, let's go see Superwoman. I'll see Superman another time. My real interest is to spend time with you, my friends. Or there's other solutions. You could say, all right, why don't you guys go see Superwoman? I'll go see Superman and we'll meet after the movie and we'll go have dinner together or we'll go have a smoothie together or something like that. There's always a solution. But if the mind is craving and clinging, then the mind gets cloudy and it can't see what's really occurring here is that you're causing your own discontentedness. Instead, what the unenlightened mind typically does is it blames the other people and they're causing you to be angry because they don't want to go see Superman. But that's wrong view. So when you understand the Four Noble Truths and the way that the Buddha taught them, that the mind is craving and clinging for form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness, then you can see what the real problem is. And in situations where your mind is experiencing discontentedness, not only can you relate it to specific craving, desires, attachments, you can actually relate it to these specific five aggregates and you can see where the mind is either craving or clinging, holding on to something related to the five aggregates. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys have. You can ask those through Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. Okay, Miranda has a question on YouTube, sir. Thank you, sir. Yes, on YouTube, Tonka asks, are formless realm beings considered living beings as well, sir? That's an interesting question that I've been thinking about for a few months myself. Let me pour this water and then I'll come back. So the way that the Buddha describes the five aggregates in a living being is he describes it as having these five aggregates. And then what you're going to see today, too, is he talks about what's called name and form. He discusses this in the dependent origination and name and form is essentially the physical body. So he describes essentially these other realms of hell, afflicted spirits and the heavenly realm as formless beings, that they're formless beings. So they have all these other four aggregates, right? They just don't have physical form. So I don't know that we refer to them as a living being because they don't have this physical form. They are a being. They exist, 
But based on the way that the Buddha is explaining it in terms of what we're seeing in the Pali Canon, they wouldn't be a living being in the way that he describes it through the five aggregates. But they certainly exist because he describes existence in one of these five realms as existence. So based on this definition of the five aggregates, it's animals and humans that are living beings. And then when you look at his first precept as part of the five precepts where he says we should live compassionately trembling for the welfare of all living beings then you understand oh yeah that a human being and an animal are a living being and these beings can actually be killed where we don't have the ability to kill a heavenly being we don't have the ability to kill an afflicted spirit. We don't have the ability to kill a hell being. It's not possible for us because they're formless. So in terms of the way that the Buddha describes them is those formless realms are not living beings. We can't kill them, but these animals and humans are living beings. And this is what he's referring to when he describes killing of living beings in the first precept of the five precepts. Yes, thank you, sir. You're welcome. Also on YouTube, um, if Pepico asks, if one defends one's self from life-threatening scenarios with violence, does this count as clinging to consciousness, sir? If you're protecting this physical body, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily clinging to consciousness. It could be there, but an enlightened being could potentially protect itself, right? The best protection is practicing right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. If you're practicing that to perfection, there shouldn't be anybody who's attempting to harm you in any way because you're making wise decisions. But let's just say there's something that occurs where an enlightened being is being attacked. This person can defend the physical body without clinging to consciousness. There wouldn't be the strong emotion involved. It would just be enough force to reject this aggression that's coming at you in order to protect the body. Where it is, if the mind is untrained and unenlightened and someone's attacked, there's gonna be all this fear, there's gonna be all this elation or all this strong emotion to the point where the person can't control their mind and sometimes there's not an equal amount of force and the person actually gets themselves in a lot of trouble where if somebody's coming at you with a baseball bat you might end up you know breaking their neck and killing them and this is seen as murder or manslaughter uh, and you can get into a lot of trouble so just because somebody's choosing to protect the physical body doesn't mean there's clinging to consciousness because you're not going to just stand there and let somebody inflict injury and kill this this being because that wouldn't be loving kindness and compassion for this being who you are right now and in order to get to enlightenment you need to practice loving kindness and compassion for all beings including this being who you are now what clinging to consciousness is is if you have certain things in the mind that you're clinging to let's just say like Let's say you have the idea that you're a kind person and you're a friendly person and this is kind of something that's in the mind. And then you hear somebody say, you're so rude. Why are you so rude? 
then if you're clinging to consciousness or you're clinging to being kind and friendly and that's who you think you are as a person, when you hear this person say you're rude, you're going to get angry and hostile towards them because you're clinging to your consciousness thinking that this is who you are as a person. So clinging to form and clinging to consciousness is equivalent to personal existence view where you think that this physical body or this mind is who you are as a person. And as long as the mind is doing that, it's going to experience conditioned feelings of either pleasant feelings, painful feelings, or neither painful nor pleasant. Okay, it looks like we don't have any other questions, sir. All right, so let's move to chapter 132. Okay, Miranda, would you please read 132 for us? Yes, sir, thank you. There is no you there. Then, Bahia, when for you, there will be only the scene in reference to the scene, only the heard in reference to the heard, only the sense in reference to the sensed, only the recognized in reference to the recognized. Then, Bahia, there is no you in connection with that. When there is no you in connection with that, there is no you there. When there is no you there, you are neither here nor there nor between the two. This, just this, is the end of stress. All right, thank you, Miranda. Here, this is a short little discourse where the Buddha is essentially describing that there's no you here. He's talking about that there's no self here. When we talk about the universal truth of non-self, the Buddha talks about this at different points in his teachings. Here, he's kind of alluding to it and kind of saying that there's no you here, meaning that this physical body and this mind isn't you. So that's why it shows up right after that last chapter, because when you talk about the five aggregates and you talk about eliminating clinging to the five aggregates, there's an aspect of that that is to realize non-self. And that's that fetter in the mind of personal existence view, where the unenlightened mind mistakenly believes or falsely understands or has this misperception that this physical body is who you are as a person or that this mind is who you are as a person. And that's where if you hear agreeable things about your self-image, you might get these pleasant feelings. I feel so great. But then it's only a matter of time before somebody says something disparaging or diminishing about your self-image. And now you experience painful feelings because you allow the mind to experience pleasant feelings when you heard this agreeable speech you're clinging to that craving permanence and now when the mind hears disagreeable speech it doesn't understand the impermanence that you're not going to permanently hear wonderful things about your self-image so then you're going to experience these painful feelings so what you need to do is get to the point where you understand and you realize the universal truth of non-self to eradicate personal existence view where you no longer see this physical body as who you are. And the same thing with the mind, this self-identity. If you have certain self-identity like, I am a Buddhist teacher. Well, if I identify with I am a Buddhist teacher and that's who I think I am as a person, again, if I hear agreeable things, there's going to be pleasant feelings, happiness, excitement, elation. All Buddhist teachers are so lovely. They're so kind. They're so friendly. They're generously giving their time to help others. Oh, I feel so wonderful because that's who I am. I'm a Buddhist teacher and I hear these agreeable words. So I feel so pleasant when I hear that. But then it's only a matter of time before somebody says something disagreeable. 
all Buddhist teachers are leading people to hell. How dare they teach those teachings or whatever somebody might say, right? And now if you identify with, I am a Buddhist teacher, when you hear this disagreeable speech, then there's going to be painful feelings like anger or sadness, and then there's going to be unskillful conduct. So when you let go of this self-identity, no longer identifying with this is who I am as a person, then you can reside peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. If you hear certain things that are agreeable about the self-image or self-identity, or if you hear things disagreeable, because these things are no longer there for somebody who's eliminated personal existence view. For someone who has realized non-self, they understand that there is no you there. It's just a physical body. It's just bones and fluid and tissue and skin and, and sinews and fluids. That's all this thing is, is it's just kind of like a, a big bag of skin with bones and fluid in it. And this mind, this consciousness, this isn't who you are. They've just come together for this unique existence. So the more you reflect on this and you realize there's no you there, then what the Buddha is saying is there will only be the scene in reference to the scene. All right, well, I see this physical body. I see it in the mirror, but that's not me. That's not who I am. It's just a physical body. Only the herd in reference to the herd. Okay, so I can hear things and I know that there's sound, but that's not who I am. And then there's the sensed in reference to the sense. So you're going to take in this content through the six senses of the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, bodily contact in the mind. But none of these things are you. There's no you in connection with that. Anything that you see, anything that you hear, anything that you sense through the sense bases, none of this is you. So the Buddha is saying there's no you in connection with any of that. So let it go, essentially, is what he's saying. Because then when you realize that there's no you in connection with that, then there's no you there. There's no you in the mind. But as long as the mind doesn't understand the universal truth of non-self and it has personal existence view, that pollution in the mind, then it's going to think that this is you. But when you can eradicate that, then there's no you there. When there's no you there, you're neither here nor there nor between the two. This, just this, is the end of stress because the mind is going to continue to get stressed and it's going to get discontentedness as long as you think this physical body is you. Because when we're youthful, ah, we feel so youthful. Then we get a gray hair. Oh my goodness, I got a gray hair. Or, oh my goodness, I've got a wrinkle. What is that? Well, it's just impermanence. That's all it is, is the hair can't be permanently one color. The skin can't be permanently youthful. This is all impermanence. But as long as you identify with this body or mind is who you are, then you're going to have stress. You're going to have discontentedness when you see this impermanence because the unenlightened mind doesn't like that. So when you realize there's no you there and you realize non-self, then none of this impermanence is going to be upsetting or disturbing to you because you just see it for what it is. It's just impermanence. This physical body nor this mind is you. And that's what the Buddha is explaining here. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Thank you, sir. Um... We have a question on Zoom. Let me just check and see if there's anything participants. Uh, actually, let me hand it over to Miranda. She has her hand up. Uh, yes, thank you, sir. On Facebook, Amina asks, 
When reflecting on non-self and the teaching that there is no you there, does that mean that others around us are not there as well? Meaning for those that we are close to and care deeply about, like family and friends, should we not attach to their sense of self either? If so, how can we better relate to them? Yeah, so you're not interested in attaching to anything because as long as you're attached, it's going to arise discontentedness. The Buddha is not saying that people don't exist. He's not saying that your body doesn't exist. What he's saying is this isn't who you are as a person. And you can see this and reflect on it because if your arm was cut off, are you less of a person? No, you just have less use of your limbs. You still have one hand and one arm. You just don't have this hand and arm. So there you can see that the body is not who you are as a person because you're not less of a person just because your arm got amputated, for example. So your daughter, your husband, your parents, people like this, they're there. They exist as an individual, as a person. But what the Buddha is explaining is that there's no you here, meaning he's encouraging you to train the mind to let go of thinking that this physical body is you or that this mind is you, but there is an existence. In other people's minds, they do have a personal existence view if they're not training on this path and they haven't eliminated it. This is why people get upset if you say something about their physical appearance or their identity in the mind. So if you were like, mom, what's going on with your hair today? Or, you know, neighbor, you know, where did you get that shirt from? what you don't like my shirt what's wrong with my shirt right like people start getting a little bit upset because they have that personal existence view so these people exist around you but you need to train your own mind that in terms of the way that your mind thinks about this body and the way that your mind thinks about the mind itself is that this isn't who you are as a person so for me like i'm i have white skin people call me a Caucasian, right? Well, I'm not Caucasian. That's just a label that people use to make it easy for them to identify and kind of separate us into categories. This physical body was born in America. People would say, I am an American, but I am not an American because that's just a label that people assign. This physical body was just happened to be born in America, right? So these labels that are given to us throughout our life, this is where the mind starts grabbing on and clinging to the consciousness and thinking this is who you are as a person, this self-identity, or it clings to this body. And that's why if you hear somebody that says something agreeable about your race or ethnicity, you might have this amazing, pleasant feeling. Or if you hear something that's degrading about your race or your culture or your ethnicity, you might have painful feelings. That's because the mind is identifying with this physical body or this mind as being who you are as a person. And that's where you can just understand, I'm not any of these things. This physical body might be considered to be from a certain ethnicity, but that's not who I am. Or this physical body might have been born on a certain land that we call America, but that doesn't make me who I am as a person. That's just happens to be where this body was 
physically born. So you get to that point, the more you reflect on this and the more you practice. Then when people say things about either the self-image or self-identity, you can see that the mind is completely peaceful and calm and it doesn't get shaken up. And that's how you'll know that personal existence view has been eliminated. Thank you, sir. On YouTube, Tonka asks, can the, an enlightened mind be you that is not personal? You that is not personal. I'm not understanding that part. Um, we can come back to that. I can ask her to elaborate a little bit. I think that Rick has a question on Zoom also. Sure, that sounds good. Okay, Shantana has a few questions. Um, the first one has to do with the last line which says, this just this is the end of stress. Uh, he said the word stress what does it mean here? Does it, in, it include the stress in work, in relationships, feelings, perceptions, etc.? The word stress is sometimes used instead of discontent or discontented or discontentedness. Is the word the word stress is kind of encapsulating the painful feelings associated in this case with having personal existence view. So the Buddha is basically saying, like, okay, when you realize non-self you will no longer experience discontentedness related to the personal existence view. That's what he's, he's saying here. So that word stress, you can replace discontent, discontented or discontentedness, same thing. Or you can associate and put in there painful feelings. But sometimes this word stress is used instead. Yeah, uh, he also, uh, Shantana also asked, the challenges for me is that I think I understand the concept of non-self, but it is hard to implement that when you have craving underneath that feeling, then the mind is in the cloud. The perception is the hardest to see. And he also said it is hard to see that the mind is non-self. Yeah, so this tends to be one of the more challenging things for people to understand because we're taught our entire life to identify with this body is who we are. We're taught our entire life to have this self-identity and take on this meaning in life and who we are as a person. So it's very challenging for the mind to, to grasp this. It often takes a year or so. I've got students that have been working to understand this for longer than that. And I have some students that understand it in a relatively short period of time. So it takes gradual understanding, gradual learning to understand it and get to the point where you can work on eradicating it. It's not a quick thing. Uh, that's why it's not showing up at the very beginning of volume one, for example. I introduce it there, but then I really get into it in chapter 16 of volume one, and then I describe it later in all these chapters that the Buddha shares. The way that you can think about eliminating personal existence view is there's all this preliminary work that needs to be done first in order to learn the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, extensive meditation training, and all this other stuff to kind of soften up the mind and get it ready to be willing to even understand personal existence view and realizing non-self and to get it ready to be willing to let it go because we've been holding on to it for so long that it's a really deep, closely held attachment that people oftentimes have a really hard time letting this go. So this is something that you're going to need to learn multiple times, talk about multiple times, reflect on it multiple times, practice the meditations multiple times. It's not something that just happens in a couple of days or a week or two. But what Rick is doing is actually helping you 
kuna, to let go of the self, because he's referring to you as a sir or a man, and she's actually a woman, Rick. So if her mind can be content when she hears you referring to her as a man, even though she's a woman, then maybe she's not identifying and holding on to this label as being a female, and she can just be completely content, even though someone's referring to her as a sir or a man. And this is one of the benefits of eliminating personal existence view. Whereas if she had this deep attachment of, I am a female, how dare him refer to me as a male? This is going to cause discontent in this, right? If, if the mind's holding on to this identity as I am a female, how dare him call me male? So this is where one can't get to a point where everyone permanently refers to you in one specific way because that's the, the universal truth of impermanence helping us to understand that. So when we let go of personal existence view, if someone calls us ma'am or sir or whatever, we can be completely content and, because we know that this isn't who we are. The person's just being polite. In Rick's case, he's just being polite. He doesn't recognize the name. And it's not possible for everyone to permanently know that this name is a female name. So this is where the real benefit comes in of eliminating personal existence view that the mind can reside peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, regardless of how people may or may not choose to refer to us, whether they're doing it, you know, with ill will or they're just doing it uh, with a, a misunderstanding. Like in, in Rick's case, he doesn't have any ill will behind it. It's just, he just didn't know. So if we have the expectation or we want people to always refer to us in a certain way, that's when we're setting ourselves up for discontentedness. Thank you, sir. Shantana has one more question. She asked, the mind and the body is not us. Then who, what are we, sir? So I don't exist, right? When I say I don't exist, it doesn't mean that this physical body isn't sitting here talking to you right now. It doesn't mean that this mind isn't communicating with you through this physical body. There is a being here that exists, but this being that you're looking at, this physical body isn't me. So if I got in a fire and my face was burned, am I not David anymore just because my face, this face is burned because the the physical structures of the body have changed no right so your mind is looking for what are we i want to identify with something you've got to let that go you got to realize there's no you here but the mind keeps grasping for something what are we just tell me what are we well okay there's a human being here there's a physical body and there's a mind and it's come together for this existence there's a human being here but this isn't who you are as a person. It's impermanent. If you don't get to enlightenment, there's going to be a rebirth and you're going to be reborn back into one of the five realms. So this isn't who you are as a person, but the mind wants to keep grasping. What are we? What are we? What are we? Nothing. You're a nobody. You're a nothing. The more you think that way, not in diminishing the mind and lacking confidence, but at least getting to the point where you realize like, I don't need to define myself. I don't need to label myself because there's no self here. All there is is a physical body and a mind that's come together. And now we refer to this being as a human being. We refer to this being as Chantana, right? Or Kuna, right? We refer to you and use that label because it's easy for us. Your parents gave you this name potentially at birth 
But now the mind associates all this identity with this name. It wants to be somebody. If I am Thai or I am this or I am a mom or I am a wife or I am this. Well, all these things are impermanent. So if the mind grasps and holds on to I am a wife, then someday when you're not in a relationship, maybe your husband passes away someday. Now you feel diminished. You feel less of a person because the mind's holding on and clinging to I am a wife. So you've got to let go of all this and realize that, okay, I perform the role as a wife and I'm in this relationship and people might refer to me as a wife. Or I have these children and I take care of them because that's my responsibility as a mom. But this is doesn't define who I am as a person because someday these children are going to leave and you're going to be by yourself. Whereas if you consider I am a mom, then when these children leave, you're going to feel very empty inside because you feel like a part of you is gone. This is what people say when their children get married or move out of the house or go to college. A part of me is gone. Or if you're life partner is gone on a business trip. You feel like part of you is gone because you're identifying with these things as being who you are as a person. But when you train the mind that, and it's not interested in clinging and holding on to a self, then you realize none of this stuff is me, but the mind based on your question is still grasping. Well, what am I? What am I then? If there's no self here, what am I? You're nothing. There's just a physical body and a mind. It's a human being. So you got to train the mind to let go and no longer grasp or cling or yearn or long for what am I? Because I do not exist. It does not exist. Okay, thank you, sir. And it looks like Miranda still has her hand up. Yes, thank you, Rick. Um, I think you may have actually answered this while answering the other question, sir. But Tonka has clarified her question from before. Can an enlightened mind be aware that we exist without having personal existence view or self view, but just alive and existing, sir? Yes. And that's exactly how an enlightened mind will think is that, yeah, there's this existence of the physical body and the mind, but this isn't who I am. And there's just this existence. That's all it is. It's just a physical body and a mind. Exactly the way you described it, Tonka, is the way an enlightened being is going to be thinking. They're no longer going to associate with this body or this mind as being who they are. They'll still take care of it. They'll still shower. They'll still brush your teeth. Still train the mind. You know, all these kind of things. But they've realized non-self. Realizing non-self means the mind no longer associates with this body or mind as being who you are as a person. You've let that go. But you still go outside and look presentable. You still wear clean clothes. You still do these kind of things because you know it's wise to do that. But you just know that this isn't who you are. So like if you were at a party and you spilled some chocolate ice cream on your shirt, if you're embarrassed because of that, that's because of the personal existence view. You have this certain self-image and now you spilt this coffee or this chocolate ice cream on your shirt and you feel embarrassed because now you're walking around with a stain of chocolate ice cream on your shirt. That embarrassed feeling, that uncomfortable feeling is because of personal existence view. But when you eradicate personal existence view and you got a big stain on your shirt, so what? 
<laughs> that's not who I am. I just drop some ice cream and you can exist in the party and be completely content and completely joyful, have conversations with people. Somebody might joke you about the stain of ice cream on your shirt. Yeah, I got a stain, you silly me, I dropped ice cream all over the shirt. You know, it won't affect you. This week at school, Bailan's teacher told me that he fell down in front of the whole class and I asked him, I said, were you embarrassed? Because I was checking to see if he still has personal existence view. He said, no, I wasn't embarrassed. I just started laughing. The teacher thought he was embarrassed, but he told me that he wasn't embarrassed. So this is the way I can check in with Bailan to see if he has personal existence view. And you can check in with yourself to see if you have personal existence view. Because if something like chocolate ice cream ends up on your shirt and you feel embarrassed or uncomfortable in front of other people, that's because you're still clinging to a self-image. Or if there's certain self-identity in the mind and you experience either pleasant feelings or painful feelings when somebody says something about this identity, then that's going to arise discontentedness in the mind. And then that's where you cut it off and cut it off and cut it off. And you kind of have to go through enough of these experiences where that personal existence view is triggered and you see it and you actively cut it off. And then the next time it happens, the mind feels less discontentedness or no discontentedness. And gradually, as this is being triggered, then eventually you get to the point where it doesn't get triggered anymore and the mind's completely peaceful and joyful, regardless of what other people might be seeing or doing related to this physical body or the mind. Okay, it looks like there aren't any other questions at this time. Um, yeah. All right, so we go to Don. chapter 133. Ali, would you please read chapter 133 for us? Thank you, Rick. Yeah. The condition, monks, there are these three characteristics that define the condition. What tree? An arising is seen, a vanishing is seen, and its alteration while it persists is seen. These are the three characteristics that define the condition. All right. Thank you, Donnie. Here, the Buddha is explaining conditioned objects because there's conditioned objects and there's unconditioned objects. Unconditioned objects is the next chapter after this. What a conditioned object is, is it's something that arises, that changes, and fades away. So discontentedness are conditioned feelings. Happiness arises, it changes, and then it fades away. Sadness arises, it changes, and then it fades away shyness arises, it changes, and it fades away. It's a conditioned feeling because it's based on some impermanent condition. So you get happy because you got a new pair of shoes. That happiness is a conditioned feeling because it's based on the condition that you got a new pair of shoes. So that happiness is going to arise, it's going to change, and it's going to fade away. Then if the mind, say, loses the shoes or the shoes get damaged, now there's going to be anger or sadness. That feeling is going to arise, it's going to change, it's going to fade away because you based your inner feelings on the condition of having a new pair of shoes. When the shoes get old or stolen or damaged, now that conditioned pleasant feeling is going to become a conditioned painful feeling of sadness or anger or frustration or something like that. This is what a conditioned object is. And I just described it in relationship to feelings. But it's also in relationship to different objects, like this mobile phone in my hand. This is a conditioned object. It has arisen, 
it changes and it's going to fade away. At one point, this phone didn't exist as a phone. It was plastic, it was different metals or different things. And even before that, it was something else and something else and something else. It was assembled into this phone. So this phone has arisen, but now it changes because the color changes. I get oil or grease or on the phone from my skin. The operating system is slowing down because it's an old phone. It's it's changing. When I first got it, you know, it worked really well, worked really fast. Where now it, it's very slow because it's an old phone. And then eventually it's going to no longer exist. Either it's going to get broken, I'm going to lose it, someone might steal it someday, or it might just stop working, or it might get so old I need to replace it, or something like that. So this is a conditioned object. It arises, it changes, and it fades away. And this is the key to understanding why the mind is experiencing discontentedness, is the mind is clinging or craving and holding on to conditioned objects, wanting them to be permanent when they're impermanent. And as long as you base your inner feelings on this conditioned object, since this conditioned object is changing, that means your feelings are going to change. You can't get to permanent, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy when you're basing your inner feelings on some conditioned object. So if I base my feelings on having the latest, greatest, best phone, then I can only be happy if I have the latest, greatest, best phone. I can't be happy with an old phone that's slowing down and is working very slowly, right? So as long as we base our inner feelings on this conditioned object of a phone or whether you have a boyfriend or girlfriend or whether you have a husband or wife or whether you have kids, whether you have a new phone, whether you have a job, whether you have a new pair of shoes, if you're basing your inner feelings on some impermanent object, i.e. a conditioned object. A conditioned object is an impermanent object. If you're basing your inner feelings on this conditioned object, when it starts changing and when it fades away, your feelings are going to do the same thing. This is why you can't get to permanent happiness because happiness is based on an impermanent condition. The condition is if I have this thing, I will experience happiness. But that thing is impermanent. So therefore, the happiness is impermanent. So when you can train the mind to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, regardless of what you have or what you don't have, if your bank account is up here, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. If your bank account's down here, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. But if you identify or you're creating pleasant feelings in the mind based on where your bank account is, your bank account isn't permanent. It's going to keep fluctuating up and down. And as long as you base your inner feelings on that, then your feelings are going to fluctuate up and down. So understanding conditioned objects is very, very important to get to enlightenment, understanding that all these things are all conditioned objects. They arise, they change, and they fade away. And because of that, if you base your feelings on those things, that means your feelings are going to do the same thing. They're going to go up and down and up and down as these things arise, change, and fade away. So you're not interested in order to get to enlightenment. You're not interested in clinging or craving or holding on to any of these things that are around you. You can have a car, but don't cling to it. You can have a children and a husband or a wife or a boyfriend or girlfriend or be single or have 
different things going on in your life, but don't cling to them and hold on to them, craving them to be permanent because they're all conditioned objects. They arise, change, and fade away. Okay, we have some questions from Miranda. Uh, yes, sir. On YouTube, Apiko asks, how would Buddhist or Buddhism deal with someone like, for instance, Hitler, with this arising, vanishing, alteration, while that being persists and while their actions are persisting are seen, sir? A enlightened being can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy despite what's going on in the world. Whether Hitler exists or some a dictator who maybe is trying to control the world or parts of the world, an enlightened being can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy despite those things because they're not basing their feelings based on what's going on in the world. If the mind is craving for the world to be a certain way, meaning there's a mental longing, strong eagerness for the world to be a certain way, when the world isn't that way, your mind's going to be shaken up. Your mind's going to be discontent, right? Or when the world is that way, if there's craving, desire, attachment, when the world is that way, it's going to be discontent because there's going to be these pleasant feelings. I'm so happy. There's no wars. Yay. I'm so happy. There's no war. There's no fighting in the world. Yay. Uh-oh. There's a war because that peacefulness wasn't permanent in terms of the world and what's happening in the world. So now there's this war. Oh my goodness, I'm so sad, I'm so angry, I'm so frustrated because the mind is basing its inner feelings on some condition. And if there's somebody like Hitler in the world or whatever else is going on in the world, an enlightened being has let go and realized that the world is going to function however it's going to function. You can't control what people do in the world. All you can do is control your own mind. And that's challenging enough, particularly for an unenlightened being. They're having difficulties controlling their mind because it's not trained. But once your mind is trained, you can completely control your mind that you see the news, you see a war. Okay, you understand why there's a war. Because of craving, mental longing, and strong eagerness, I want this land. Oh, you're not going to give me that land? Okay, my anger arises because now you haven't given me what I want, the objects of my affection. I didn't get these pleasant feelings. So now there's these painful feelings. I'm going to attack you and I'm going to kill and I'm going to rape, murder and pillage and destroy until you submit with fear and give me what I want. And why is all this happening? The craving and anger is happening because of the ignorance, the unknowing of true reality. People don't understand that when you have craving and anger, it leads to unwholesome results. And there's death and there's destruction. There's businesses that don't want to be part of your country anymore. There's people who don't want to be part of your country who leave. All of this is gamma. So an enlightened being understands that the problems in the world are all happening because the human mind is polluted with craving, anger, and ignorance. And if somebody is making decisions through craving, anger, and ignorance, it's going to lead to unwholesome results because they're making unwise decisions. So when these things are happening in the world, whether it's murder or rape or other things like this, an enlightened being understands that all of this is occurring because of craving, anger, and ignorance. This is all impermanence and there's nothing that an enlightened being can do in order to 
fix that because those people have to choose to eliminate their own craving, anger, and ignorance. They have to walk towards the light. We can't force people to walk towards the light. An enlightened being who decides to be a teacher can set up in a way to allow people to come learn. But if those people aren't willing to come learn and train their mind, there's nothing that enlightened being can do to force the world or control the world to be a certain way. But that enlightened being understands the world and their mind is peaceful and joyful despite what's going on in the world. They don't base their inner feelings on what's going on in the world. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. uh, Pepico has a follow-up question. If someone like Hitler wanted to um, genocide Buddhists, what would Buddhism and Buddhists do? Everybody would do something different. You can't say what everybody would do because the Buddha didn't give a playbook and say, if this happens, do this. If that happens, do this. Right. What he did instead is he explained to you what the problems are in the unenlightened mind, the pollutions. And then he gave you the path of how to clear out the pollutions. And then you have free will to make whatever decisions you make. And when you're making decisions without craving anger and ignorance, then you're practicing generosity, love and kindness and wisdom. And you're going to make decisions based on whatever you decide. There's a million and one different decisions that somebody might make. Buddhists don't follow some doctrine or some book and everybody does exactly the same thing. That would be permanence. Instead, there's this guidance of the Buddha explaining the natural laws of existence, the pollutions in mind and how to eradicate them. And then different people will make different decisions. There can be 10 million right answers in a situation like that. And everybody's going to make whatever decision is best for them. Not everybody's going to make the exact same decision. Yes, thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. um, a question from my own mind here on this. So if we are on this path to enlightenment, um, trying to cut off and let go of feelings that may arise due to conditioned situations, um, like the raise that was given at work, there was talk about work ethic, dependability, attitude while at work. And it was noted the beginnings, like the bodily sensations of pleasant feelings, but that was cut off and let go. And the focus just became appreciating the, the phrase, the extra money, because it's helpful, um, and just keep going in and doing the job the way that it's the way I've been doing it. Is that the correct way to handle something like that, sir? Or is there something more that I should be doing? That's exactly what you would like to do. And that's what's going to help you get to enlightenment. If you can observe with mindfulness that bodily sensations are arising, pleasant feelings, because there's craving, desire, attachment in there, and you can observe those bodily sensations and cut them off, this person is getting close to enlightenment because they have enough mindfulness that they can observe the bodily sensations and they have enough control that they can cut it off and let it go. By the time this person does this over and over and over again, eventually they get to the point where there's not even bodily sensations because the craving desire attachment has eliminated them. There's still bodily sensations in terms of you'll feel something when it touches your skin, but 
there's not bodily sensations in terms of craving desire attachment that's producing bodily sensations when there's a rising of painful feelings or pleasant feelings or neither painful nor pleasant. The reason why those arising of bodily sensations is occurring is because of craving desire attachment. So if you have awareness of those and you cut them off sooner and sooner and sooner, eventually you get to the point where something will happen where the boss says, hey, Miranda, we'd like to acknowledge you for your great work and we've got this raise for you. And you just right away move to gratitude and appreciation. That's where the mind is, it's just gratitude and appreciation. There's no pleasant feelings that arise because there's no craving to be acknowledged or there's no craving for money. There's no craving for these things, but you know you need them, so you pursue them as a goal, an objective, or interest. So this is where the mind can be really peaceful because you don't even experience the arising of bodily sensations associated with discontentedness because there's no cravings that are causing discontentedness to arise. So you won't experience even bodily sensations associated with that because the cravings are completely eliminated. Yes, thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. uh, there are no more questions on YouTube and Facebook, but I see Rick has his hand raised. Let's go to him, sir. Okay, thank you. I um, Actually, you may have already answered the question, so if I ask it and you feel that you've answered it already, please let me know. But I was just wondering if during the actual meditation practice, you know, a practical level, how would I apply this? Uh, the arising is seen, the vanishing is seen, and it's alteration. How would I apply as I'm breathing in and out? You said to cut it off. I know that's a very, very simple direction, but when it comes to the deeper levels of arising, of thought arising, of feeling arising, of physical sensation arising, and then remaining and maybe altering and then eventually fading away. How would I apply that in my meditative awareness uh, during my meditation practice? Yeah, this teaching here isn't necessarily teaching you anything for meditation, but remember there's this learning, there's this reflection, and then there's the practice, and this is all leading to wisdom. So what the Buddha is explaining to you here is an aspect of the natural laws of existence. In the next chapter, he's gonna explain the unconditioned. Here he's explaining conditioned. So you learn this. Okay, the Buddha is saying a conditioned object is something that arises, that changes, and fades away. Okay, now you reflect and you start looking around the world and you say, okay, is this coffee mug that I have water in? Is this a conditioned object? Well, yeah, because it arose, it changes, the color changes, it might get chips, and then eventually it fades away. That's a conditioned object. Is this remote control for the air conditioner condition object? Yeah, because it arose, it changes, and then it's going to fade away someday. So here you're just gaining wisdom of what a conditioned object is because this is a building block to help you understand why he's teaching to not crave and cling. Because if you understand that if you crave or cling for conditioned objects and these things are constantly changing and fading away, then you're just setting yourself up to fail. So this isn't giving you anything related to what you should do in meditation. Those are other teachings where he's sharing that. But by understanding this, it will help you understand why you're cutting off thoughts and letting them go because you're not interested in clinging to this conditioned 
feeling or this conditioned thought that arises. So you start seeing more and more of this comprehensive approach that the Buddha put in place and he shared. And this is one of those building blocks to help you understand why you're doing what you're doing in meditation. But you have to kind of start at the beginning to just understand, okay, well, what is a conditioned object? And start reflecting on that and be like, all right, I got it. I understand what a conditioned object is. And yes, this makes sense why I'm cutting off and letting go of this thought that arises in meditation because the mind wants to hold on to it. But I need to train the mind to not hold on to these things and to let go. And this is why you're interested in doing that in meditation, because the mind is going to want to hold on to conditioned objects. But as long as it does that, it's going to keep experiencing discontentedness because they arise, change and fade away. So that means your feelings are going to do the same thing. What you're trying to get to is an unconditioned mind where the peace, calm, serenity and contentedness with joy. It doesn't arise. It doesn't change and it doesn't fade away. And that's what the next chapter has in it. Thank you, sir. There are no more questions at this time. All right. So here's the next one, 134. All right. And um, so 134, that's me. Okay. Monks, there are three characteristics that define the unconditioned. What three? No arising is seen. No vanishing is seen. No alteration while a persistence scene. These are the three characteristics that define the conditioned. All right. So thanks, Rick. So now that we understand what a conditioned object is, now we can understand the unconditioned. There's no unconditioned, you know, coffee mug, for example, right? There's no unconditioned mobile phone. These are conditioned objects. But this unconditioned, what he's explaining is things like, enlightenment itself, that it doesn't arise, it doesn't change, and it doesn't fade away. The peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, it doesn't arise, it doesn't change, and it doesn't fade away. The reason why the mind experiences discontentedness is because of the pollution, where it's clinging and craving for conditioned objects. And when you eliminate that, and the mind gets to this purity in this unconditioned mind, then the peacefulness doesn't arise, it doesn't change, and it doesn't fade away. You wake up all day long and you go to sleep, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. So the enlightened mental state itself is unconditioned. The natural laws of existence that the Buddha taught 2,500 years ago, the laws themselves are unconditioned. His teachings that got written down, they're a conditioned object because they were actually written down onto paper and onto palm leaves. So those arose, changed, and faded away. And that's what we're doing now is bringing them back into the world. But in terms of the natural laws themselves, the natural law of gamma hasn't changed since the lifetime of the Buddha. These natural laws that he's explaining here, they haven't changed. That's why his teachings are timeless. What he taught 2,500 years ago is just as applicable today as it was back then. The natural laws of existence haven't changed. What's changed over time, 2,500 years, is people's understanding of them and the resources that we use in order to explain them. That's what's been changing because those things are conditioned. 
the books, the, the writings, the people's memory, people's minds, those things are conditioned objects. So they arise, change, and fade away. So people have lost the understanding of what the Buddhist teachings are. But once you get to this unconditioned mind and you understand these natural laws of existence, you understand that the natural laws exist the same today as they did back then. It's just our understanding of them has changed. So by understanding these natural laws, you can get to this unconditioned mind where you've completely purified the mind and it's no longer polluted with these conditions of craving, anger, and ignorance, or these 10 fetters. These are conditions too. And these conditions or these pollutions in the mind are hindering the mind from experiencing this unconditioned experience of enlightenment. Another example of something that's unconditioned is unconditioned love, right? If you have ever had a child and you love that child unconditionally, you might have loved that child while it was still in your stomach or as a father, you might have had a child that was inside a female stomach and you loved it before you ever met it. And you just know, like, I love this being and I haven't even met it. I have no idea what it looks like. I have no idea anything about this being, but I love it unconditionally. My love doesn't arise. It doesn't change and it doesn't fade away that I will always love this being no matter what. That's unconditioned love. But the unfortunate thing is that the unenlightened mind typically misunderstands craving, desire, attachment as love. We say, if you meet these conditions, I will love you. And then when you stop meeting these conditions, I don't love you anymore. This is an unconditioned love. This is actually craving, desire, attachment. It's selfishness. It's expectations. But when you get to the point that you have unconditioned love, this person didn't do anything for you to love them. Therefore, there's nothing they can do for you to stop loving them. If this person says, I hate you, you still love them. Or if this person says, I love you, I still love you. If this person gets a job as a police officer, you love them. If this person gets a job as a food server, you love them. Your love isn't based on any conditions because you have unconditional love. So unconditional love, it doesn't arise, it doesn't change, and it doesn't fade away. So these are some of the things that are unconditioned. Enlightenment, the mental qualities of enlightenment, and the natural laws of existence, as well as the unconditioned love, which unconditioned love is part of the natural laws of existence. So I typically will share that it's enlightenment and the natural laws of existence that are unconditioned. These two things, they don't arise, they don't change, and they don't fade away. Once the mind is enlightened, it's permanent. It will never regress. If you understand the natural laws of existence, you can look at them and you can see that they don't change. Just like during the lifetime of the Buddha, when he said the five factors of well-spoken speech are speak at the right time, what you say is true, speak gently, speak beneficially, speak with a mind of loving kindness. He's explaining right speech through the natural laws of gamma. That doesn't change. It doesn't change. It's not like, oh, yeah, there's one more factor that he forgot. Or, oh, the natural law of gamma has changed. We need to insert this new factor. Or those five trades that he talks about in Right Livelihood, where he talks about not having 
livelihood that is based on selling weapons, on selling living beings, on selling meat, on selling substances that cause heedlessness, or selling poisons. It's not like, oh yeah, we're going to add being a soldier, or oh yeah, we're going to add being a private investigator. That's a, a wrong livelihood. No, he explained these five livelihoods and he spoke in a way that is timeless because the natural law of gamma doesn't change. So he's explaining to you what these natural laws are. And now once you understand them and you see the mind has eliminated discontentedness, you've arrived to what's called final knowledge. Final knowledge is when the mind is enlightened. You've accumulated all the wisdom to train the mind and get to the point where the mind is now unconditioned. It's purified. It's no longer experiencing any discontentedness. And your mind has been experiencing that for a year or two or three. And you know that your mind no longer experiences discontentedness. You've acquired final knowledge or final wisdom. And this is where you deeply see with clarity the natural laws of existence. You could easily explain them with ease to anybody who might ask a question about them. And then you can see that these natural laws, they haven't changed because they're unconditioned. It's just that people's understanding of those natural laws isn't what it was during the lifetime of the Buddha as a Buddha fully awakening as the perfectly enlightened one. He would know these teachings inside and out, backwards and forwards. And he's the one who's declaring these natural laws. And then from that point on, the degrading of his teachings is what's happened over 2,500 years where they're not well understood in the world amongst the population of people in the world. But once you've got that understanding and arrived to final knowledge and there's no more discontentedness in the mind, you will see these unconditioned experiences of enlightenment in the natural laws of existence. They don't arise, they don't change, and they don't fade away. They're just always present. So the enlightened qualities of mind, they're just always there. The natural laws of existence, they're always there. Human beings' understanding of them might change, but the natural laws are just always there. Looks like there are no questions at this time, sir. All right, so we'll go to chapter 135. Okay, Miranda, will you please read 135 for us? Yes, sir, thank you. Where earth, water, fire, and wind find no footing. Once, Kavada, in this order of monks, the thought occurred to a certain monk, I wonder where the four great elements, the earth element, the water element, the fire element, and the wind element, are eliminated without remainder. And that monk attained to such a state of mental concentration that the way to the heavenly realm appeared before him. And that monk attained to such a state of mental concentration that the way to the heavenly realm appeared before him. He went to the heavenly realm of the four great kings and asked the question. When none of them could answer the question, the monk went to the 33 gods who said, we don't know, but Saka, ruler of the gods, may know. Saka told the monk to ask the Yama heavenly beings, the Suyama, the Tusita heavenly beings, the Santusita, the Nimanarati, the Sunimita, Parinimita Vesavati heavenly beings, Vasavati, Brahma's associates, and all the way to the great Brahma. The great Brahma avoided the answer and finally said, 
that the heavenly beings believe there is nothing Brahma does not know. But the truth is, he does not know where the four great elements cease without remainder. It is the monk's fault that he did not ask the perfectly enlightened one. In the end, the monk went back to the perfectly enlightened one. So that monk, as swiftly as a strong man might flex or unflex his arm, vanished from the Brahma world and appeared in my presence. He prostrated himself before me, then sat down to one side and said, Venerable sir, where are the four great elements, the earth element, the water element, the fire element, and the wind element, eliminated without remainder? I replied, Monk, once upon a time, sea-traveling merchants, when they set sail on the ocean, took in their ship a land-sighting bird. When they could not see the land themselves, they released this bird. The bird flew to the east, to the south, to the west, to the north. It flew to the zenith overhead and to the intermediate points of the compass. If it saw land anywhere, it flew there. But if it saw no land, it returned to the ship. In the same way, monk, you have been as far as the Brahma world, searching for an answer to your question and not finding it. And now you come back to me. But monk, you should not ask your question this way. Where are the four great elements, the earth, water, fire, and wind elements, eliminated without remainder? Instead, this is how the question should have been put. Where do earth, water, fire, and wind find no footing? Where are long and short, small and great, fair and foul? Where are name and form wholly destroyed? And the answer is, where consciousness is quieted, immeasurable, all radiant, that's where earth, water, fire, and wind find no footing. There, both long and short, small and great, fair and foul, there, name and form are wholly destroyed. With the elimination of consciousness, this is all destroyed. All right. Thank you, Miranda. Let me help you guys understand this. The prior part of the discourse was just kind of this person going off and asking questions and trying to find the answer. And then he eventually comes to the Buddha and the Buddha says, okay, this question you're asking, it isn't really the best way to ask the question. This is how you should ask the question. What he's asking about is earth, water, fire, and wind. These are called the four elements or the four great elements. This is the way they describe the human body during the lifetime of the Buddha. Today, we talk about skin and bones and fluids, sinews, nerves, muscle tissue, ligaments, tendons, all these kind of things, because we understand the body in a much more detailed way than they did 2,500 years ago. They described everything through these four elements. So the earth element are the solids of the body, like the fingernails, the hair, the teeth, things like this, the bones, these are the earth element. The water element are the fluids of the body, like urine and blood and pus and slava, tears, things like this. The fire element is the temperature of the body, the digestion of the body. They described ailments and what was going on in the body through these four elements. And fire is related to digestion because digestion has a lot to do with certain illnesses and sicknesses. And then the wind element, this describes the movement of the body. So something like blood, it's part of the water element but the movement of the blood has to do with wind. The movement of feces and urine and blood and pus and things like this is described through the wind element. So they would describe 
the body and the ailments of the body and the sickness of the body through these elements. So you might go to a doctor during the lifetime of the Buddha and they say, oh, your earth element is depleted, your water element is inflated, and your fire element is neutral and your wind element is neutral. So here's my prescription. You need to take these herbs and this is how they would diagnose and they would prescribe through these four elements. So what this person is really asking is they're asking about this name and form. That's what the Buddha is getting to is he says this name and form, which is essentially the physical body. The person's asking essentially, where is the end of this physical body? Where does this physical body no longer take existence? This has to do with the cycle of rebirth. So they're using language from the past to describe the physical body. So essentially what he's saying is, where does the skin, the bones, the blood, the fluid, the tissue no longer exist without remainder? And the Buddha saying, well, the skin, the bones, the fluid, all of these things, you should be asking, where do they no longer exist or find footing or no longer come into the world? So the, the question that the student's asking is, where do they get eliminated? The Buddha says, what you should be asking is, where do they not get produced? Where does this physical body not get produced? And that's what he's talking about with name and form, because name and form is essentially the physical body. And he explains this independent origination. He explains what name and form is. So the Buddha says here, his answer is where the physical body no longer exists is where consciousness is quieted. So he's basically saying when there's no longer a consciousness to be reborn, then there will no longer be a physical body. That's what he's essentially saying here. He's saying that when you eliminate, he says this in other parts of his teachings, is when you eliminate craving, anger, and ignorance from the mind, then the consciousness is quieted. It's no longer going to produce a new existence. A consciousness that is quieted and has eliminated craving, desire, attachment will no longer take on a physical body. That's essentially what he's saying. So he's saying that with the elimination of consciousness, meaning when you eliminate the craving, desire, attachment, when you eliminate the anger, hatred, ill will, when you eliminate this ignorance, this delusion, this unknowing of true reality, that consciousness is destroyed. So therefore, there is no longer going to be any rebirth. That's what he's explaining here. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Looks like we don't have any questions at this time, sir. Okay. I would like to just share with you guys that you guys can read these uh, explanations if you haven't already. I explain where all the elements are. I explain what name and form is and I explain how the Buddha is relating this to the cycle of rebirth. So that can also help you in addition to what I'm explaining in class. So the next chapter is 136. Okay, Donnie, will you please read 136 for us? In this phantom long body, I say, friend, that by traveling one cannot know, see, or reach the end of the world where one is not born, does not grow old and die, does not pass away and get reborn. Yet I say that without having reached the end of the world, there is no making an end of discontentedness. It is in this phantom long body endowed with perception and mind that I proclaim the world, 
the origin of the world, the elimination of the world, and the way leading to the elimination of the world. Okay, thank you, Donnie. A couple of things here before I start explaining it. Fathom is a measurement during the lifetime of the Buddha. It's essentially about 1.8 meters or about six feet. That's what a fathom is. So we can understand from this that the Buddha was basically six feet tall or 1.8 meters tall. That's how tall he was because he's describing fathom long body. That's his body that he's describing. Here, what the Buddha is explaining is that you can't understand the end of discontentedness and how to eliminate discontentedness without having eliminated discontentedness. So you're in the process of learning how to eliminate discontentedness, but you're not going to know how to fully eliminate discontentedness until you eliminate discontentedness. That's what he's essentially saying here. So he's saying you can't know the end of the world uh, without having traveled to the end of the world is basically what he's saying. So you can't know the end of discontentedness until you've traveled to making an end to the discontentedness. And then he explains here, and he's relating it to the world because he's describing this analogy of the world that you can't know the end of the world until you have reached the end of the world. And he's saying that, okay, I've proclaimed the world, the origin of the world, the elimination and the way leading to the elimination of the world. But what he's really saying here is, I've proclaimed what is discontentedness. I've proclaimed what is the cause of discontentedness. I've proclaimed the elimination of discontentedness. And I've proclaimed the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. And if you're interested in understanding how to get to the end of discontentedness, then you're going to need to essentially learn the Four Noble Truths. This is what he's pointing to. He's pointing to the Four Noble Truths and saying, this is the way to learn the end of discontentedness. Because if the path to enlightenment has a starting point and a finish line, which it it doesn't have a finish line, but if there was a starting point and a finish line, the starting point is the Four Noble Truths, establishing right view. That's how somebody would get to the point of starting the path to enlightenment is establishing right view, understanding what is discontentedness, the cause, the elimination, and the path forward. So that's what he's explaining here is if you're going to take this journey to the end of the world, you've got to start with understanding the Four Noble Truths is what he's saying. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? It looks like we do not have any questions at this time, sir. Right, so let's go to the next chapter, which is 137. I believe I'm reading that one. But because there is an unborn, unbecome, unmade, unconditioned, there is, monks, an unborn, unbecome, unmade, unconditioned. If there were not that unborn, unbecome, unmade, unconditioned, there would not be this be the case that escape from the born, become made, conditioned, would be identified. But precisely because there is an unborn, unbecome, unmade, unconditioned, escape from the born, become made, conditioned, is thus identified. The born become produced, made, conditioned, impermanent, conditioned of aging and death, a nest of illnesses, perishing, come into being through nourishment and the guide that is craving is unfit for excitement. The escape from that is peaceful, 
permanent, a sphere beyond conjecture, unborn, unproduced, the sorrowless, stainless state, the elimination of stressful qualities, stilling of fabrications and completely peaceful. There is monks in unborn, unbecome, unmade, unconditioned. If monks, there were no unborn, unbecome, unmade, unconditioned, no escape would be discerned from what is born, become, made, conditioned. But because there is an unborn, unbecome, unmade, unconditioned, therefore an escape is identified from what is born, become, made, conditioned. All right. Thank you, Rick. So here, the Buddha is talking about enlightenment, and he's describing this unconditioned and that enlightenment is permanent and it's peaceful. The mind is completely peaceful. And he's saying because there is the conditioned experiences and this un impermanent nature of life that he has discovered this escape. And this escape is peaceful, permanent. The mind is completely peaceful. The stilling of all fabrications. This is the stilling or quieting of the mind right? The elimination of stressful qualities. This is where you can see that the Buddha is talking about enlightenment as being permanent. Some people don't understand enlightenment and they think that an enlightened being still experiences stress or an enlightened being still experiences anger or frustration. I've heard people say that an enlightened being still experiences these things. They just don't cling to the frustration or they just don't cling to the irritation. But this isn't true. And you can see that here in the Buddha's words. And as you learn his teachings and you get closer and closer to enlightenment, you can see the truth for yourself that the mind gets to a point where it's completely peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. So he's explaining here that the escape or this enlightened mental state is peaceful, it's permanent. He says, if monks, there were no unborn, unbecoming, unmade, unconditioned, no escape would be discerned or no escape would be discovered or no escape would be identified from the born becoming made and conditioned. So the mind would still experience conditioned experiences and it would continue to experience discontentedness. But because there is this enlightened mental state is essentially what he's talking about here. Therefore, there is an escape. There's an escape from this cycle of rebirth, from being constantly born and experiencing this conditioned feelings of the mind going up and down. So he discovered the escape. That's what he's explaining here. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? I see Miranda has her hand up. Uh, yes, sir. It seems that we moved a bit quickly past the last couple of chapters. Um, Amina has a question for a couple of chapters ago. She says, so the consciousness is like the container that holds cravings, sir? Yes, that's correct. And then on YouTube, Tonka asks, regarding the previous chapter, can we say that eliminating of pollution in consciousness instead of eliminating the consciousness would stop cycle of rebirth, sir? Yes. So, yes and no. Eliminating the pollution of mind is going to clear out the conditions that cause the mind to go up and down. The consciousness itself is not permanent. So once an enlightened being gets to enlightenment, 
the consciousness isn't permanent. We know that it's impermanent. But that consciousness is not going to lead to a rebirth. So that consciousness is going to essentially dissolve and become eliminated. That mind is going to be eliminated. It doesn't lead to a a next rebirth. So we're eliminating the pollutions of this particular consciousness, this particular mind. And if you eliminate the pollutions of mind, then there will no longer be rebirth because this consciousness is not going to continue. And even if there is rebirth, that same consciousness isn't continuing. It's an actual new mind that gets created as part of that next rebirth. But what comes next for an enlightened being is an undeclared teaching. So once somebody gets to enlightenment and the consciousness is now purified, what happens next, if anything at all, is an undeclared teaching. You have to let go of even craving or wanting to know what's next, if anything at all. Yes, thank you, sir. And then on Zoom, Chantana asks about um, 136. Um, I link the five aggregates to this chapter and wonder why the Buddha only chose to talk about three out of the five, which is form endowed with perception and mind or consciousness and did not talk about feeling and volitional formation. Not sure. You know, we know that he's talking about the physical body. He's talking about perceptions, which are, you know, the way we perceive the world. And he's talking about the mind itself. So it is this fathom long body endowed with perception and mind that I proclaim. Oh, because here it's just he's talking about the body and the mind coming together for this existence. And then his perception, he's explaining his view. He's explaining how he views the world. His feelings and his volitional formations don't have anything to do with how he's explaining his view of the world in these teachings. So that's why he would only describe the body, the mind coming together. And now he's explaining his view of clear reality, of true reality, of this is discontentedness. This is the cause, the elimination and the path forward. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. Uh, It does not appear we have any other questions at this time. Okay, so we'll go to 138. Yes, sir. Uh, Donnie, can you read 138 for us, please? Thank you, Veranda. Final knowledge is achieved by gradual training. Monks, I do not say that final knowledge or wisdom is achieved all at once. On the contrary, final knowledge is achieved by gradual training, by gradual practice, by gradual progress. And how does there come to be gradual training, gradual practice, gradual progress? Here, one who has confidence in a teacher visits him. When he visits him, he pays respects to him. When he pays respects to him, he gives ear. One who gives ear hears the teaching. After he heard the teachings, he memorizes them. He examines the meaning of the teaching he has memorized When he examines their meaning, he gains a reflective understanding of this teaching. When he has gained a reflective understanding of this teaching, enthusiasm springs up in him. When enthusiasm has sprung up, he applies his will. Having applied his will, he investigates. Having investigated, he strives. Purposefully striving, he realizes with the ultimate truth and sees it by penetrating it with wisdom. All right. Thank you, Donnie. 
Here, this is going to help you to understand a couple of things and things that you might have heard in Buddhist communities that actually aren't true. The first thing here that the Buddha is explaining in this first paragraph is he's explaining that enlightenment, which is final knowledge, getting to final knowledge, the mind is enlightened, is not achieved all at once. He says, monks, I do not say that enlightenment is achieved all at once, is essentially what he's saying. Because this is the rumor, this is the myth that you'll hear in a lot of parts of Buddhist communities. People think that the Buddha sat under a tree, he meditated, and he instantly got to enlightenment. And this is why we see a lot of people in the world that are just meditating, 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 thinking that they're going to get to enlightenment, not realizing that this path starts with right view. And it starts with right intention and right speech and right action. If you're meditating all day long, but you're not practicing right speech, for example, you're never going to get to enlightenment. So he's not saying that enlightenment is attained all at once. On the contrary, this final knowledge or enlightenment is achieved by gradual training, gradual practice, and gradual progress. Because it took him six years to get to enlightenment. So it was gradual that that occurred. Right. And then he says, "Okay, well, how does the gradual training, gradual practice and gradual progress occur? Well, for a Buddha, they're doing it by themselves without the help of any teachers or any guides. But he understands that's just him and any future Buddha that arises. It's just him. Right. He's giving guidance for other people. He's saying, "Okay, how do you acquire this gradual training, gradual practice and gradual progress? Well, you need to have a teacher right? It's only a Buddha, which is very rare, that's going to be able to get to enlightenment without the help of any teachers or any guides. So one needs to have a teacher, have somebody that they can understand the teachings from and be guided on this path. But in order to have a teacher, you're going to need to have confidence in somebody. You're going to have to have confidence that this teacher can actually help you get to enlightenment. And you're going to need to visit them. You're going to need to show up to classes. You're going to need to talk to them. You're going to need to have personal conversations with them and things like that. And when you visit that person, the Buddha is saying, okay, pay respect to that person. Because that person who's teaching you to get to enlightenment, they're not doing it for their benefit. They're helping you. And they shouldn't be asking for any money. Of course, that they're going to need donations in order to support their life, but they're just practicing generosity, loving kindness with you in order to help you get to enlightenment. So yes, pay respect to the person who's helping you get to enlightenment because that's going to help you maintain a good, healthy relationship with them. And after you do that, the Buddha says, okay, give ear, meaning listen to the teachings right? Listen to that teacher because you have confidence in them. And then when you hear the teachings, the Buddha is saying, memorize those teachings because by memorizing those teachings, then you'll be able to apply them in daily life. If you don't memorize the teachings, then you're not going to be able to apply them in daily life. You can't be looking through a book every time you need to do something in life. You need to memorize the teachings like the five factors of well-spoken speech. You need to memorize those so you can practice them at will. When you memorize the teachings, the Buddha is saying, okay, examine them, right? Don't just believe them, but examine the teachings. When you start examining them, then you start reflecting on them, right? So you've learned 
and now you reflect. That's what the Buddha is saying. Okay, start reflecting on the teachings. And when you start reflecting on the teachings, then you're going to start to observe that these teachings are true, and there's going to be this enthusiasm. Oh my goodness, I've discovered the truth. Yes, it is craving, desire, attachment that's causing my discontentedness. That means all this anger, all this frustration that I've experienced my whole life, I've been causing it myself. And you start getting enthusiastic about this. And when this enthusiasm springs up, then you're going to be interested in applying this will to actually make changes and transform and evolve. And then the Buddha is saying, okay, investigate, right? Further investigate and essentially practice the teachings is what he's saying here is practice. Strive to practice these teachings, applying them in daily life. This is where I say learn, reflect and practice. And then purposely striving and practicing, you realize the ultimate truth because you can't just learn and get the truth. You need to learn, reflect, and practice. And when you practice, that's where you discover the ultimate truth. And then you can see it with penetrating wisdom because you've penetrated into the teachings. You didn't just believe with blind faith. But instead, you learned, you reflected, and you practiced. And as you practice, you see the truth for yourself that the five factors of well-spoken speech help you in your personal and professional relationships. And you see your relationships blossom. And you see the truth that 100% these five factors of well-spoken speech are true because you've learned them, you've reflected on them, and you practiced, and now you see the truth for yourself. That's how you go from being off the path to getting a teacher to respecting to listening to learning memorizing to reflecting and then practicing and that's how you ultimately move the mind to enlightenment what questions do you guys have on this chapter it's it is understood that during the lifetime of Gautama buddha it was important to really memorize every teaching orally and recite them orally because that's how they were teaching and remembering and sharing these at that time. Now, due to impermanence, we have these teachings written down and stored digitally and in all these different formats. Something like the five factors of well-spoken speech, those you know shorter teachings, I can see memorizing those word for word. But some of these discourses that are much longer, is it still very important that we memorize those word for word? Or can we more memorize the summary and the, I want to say moral, in each of these discourses instead of memorizing those word for word? Yeah, you're not going to have to memorize any of the discourses word for word in order to get to enlightenment because we have them written down. But you're going to need to understand what the Buddha is teaching and memorize that. So like the five factors of well-spoken speech, memorizing that you need to speak what is spoken at the right time, what is said is true, it's spoken gently, it's beneficial and with a mind of loving kindness. You need to understand and remember those five. And if you can just boom, 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 those five bullets, then you got it. You don't have to remember each individual word and sentence and structure of his discourses. Or like something like right intention. You'll need to know that it's three things. 
you know, intention of renunciation. And what is that? What is intention of renunciation? Intention of non-ill will. And what is that? And the intention of harmlessness. And what is that? Because in order for you to practice these things, you're going to have to remember what they are. But in terms of remembering word for word for word, you won't have to do that. Yes, thank you, sir. Mm-hmm. And then on Zoom, Donnie asks, what does will refer to? Will is like your intention, putting your intention behind something. So if you don't have will or you don't have intention, then you're kind of like lackluster, complacent. So here the Buddha is saying, like, apply your will, apply your initiative, apply your enthusiasm. Because if you've got this enthusiasm, now you have to put your intention into actually doing the work to practice the teachings. Yes, thank you, sir. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does not appear we have any other questions at this time, sir. All right. So now we go to chapter 139. Uh, seeing non-self with correct wisdom. Monks, form is impermanent, feeling is impermanent, perception is impermanent, volitional formations, choices and decisions are impermanent, consciousness is impermanent. What is impermanent is discontentedness. What is discontentedness is non-self. What is non-self should be seen as it really is with correct wisdom thus. This is not mine. This I am not, this is not myself. When one sees this thus as it really is with correct wisdom, one holds no more views concerning the past. When one holds no more views concerning the past, one holds no more views concerning the future. When one holds no more views concerning the future, one has no more stubborn craving. When one has no more stubborn craving, the mind becomes strong feelings towards form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness, and is liberated from the taints by non-clinging. By being liberated, the mind is steady. By being steady, the mind is content. By being content, one is not agitated. Being unagitated, one personally attains nibbana or enlightenment. One understands, destroyed is birth, the holy life has been lived. What had to be done has been done. There is no more for this state of existence. Thank you, Miranda. So here the Buddha is showing the five aggregates. He's talking about the five aggregates, and he's saying all of these are impermanent. Form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness are all impermanent. This really helps you to see all these things as being impermanent, because once you understand that the problem is the mind clinging to these conditioned objects which are impermanent and that's why the mind keeps going up and down because the mind's clinging and craving and holding on to these conditioned objects when you understand that they're impermanent it's like why would i cling to it why would i crave permanence when i know that they're impermanent so that's really helpful to understand the five aggregates are all impermanent and now the buddha is saying okay well what is impermanent is discontentedness essentially what he's saying is what the mind clings to that is impermanent is going to lead to discontentedness or what the mind craves for that is impermanent because the mind's craving permanence it's going to lead to discontentedness what is discontentedness is non-self so when you're experiencing pleasant feelings painful feelings and neither painful nor pleasant the buddha is saying that's not you that's not who you are 
That's not the self. So when you get angry, you don't think about it as I am angry. It's like there's anger in the mind. I am not angry because there's no I here, right? If you get to the point where you've eliminated personal existence view, but you're still going to experience some anger because you're not yet enlightened, then the mind can be angered, but I am not angry. It's just the mind has anger in it. And you think about the mind as this third entity. And this is really helpful for you to eradicate the various aspects of the mind that you need to eliminate. So when you experience discontentness, don't think about it as I am experiencing discontentedness. Think of it as the mind is experiencing discontentedness. Let me investigate the mind and figure out what I need to do in order to eliminate that. There's some craving, desire, attachment there. So the Buddha is saying this discontentedness is not you. It's not the self. What is not the self should be seen as it really is with correct wisdom. Thus, this is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. He's saying that this mind is not you, right? This discontentedness is not you. This is not mine. I am not. This I am not. This is not myself. So none of these five aggregates is mine. This body isn't mine. It doesn't belong to me. This mind is not mine. It doesn't belong to me. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. This is just a physical body and a mind that has come together for this existence. It's not mine. This I am not. This is not myself, right? So there's no self here. When one sees this thus as it really is with correct wisdom, one holds no more views concerning the past, meaning anything you did in the past, it's in the past. That's not who you are. If you got angry, if you got frustrated, if you used drugs, if you had sexual abuse, if you had sexual misconduct, if you killed, if you took substances that cause heedlessness, it's all in the past. That's not who you are. Those were just decisions you were making at that time. So when one sees this thus as it really is with correct wisdom, one holds no more views concerning the past. All that stuff's in the past. When one holds no more views concerning the past, one holds no more views concerning the future, meaning whatever happens in the future is in the future. It hasn't happened yet. Why worry about it? What you're doing is you're bringing the mind to the present moment. Because when one holds no more views concerning the future, one has no more stubborn craving. Because if you're not craving and clinging and holding on to the past, and you're not craving and clinging for the future, then the mind can just be in the present moment. It doesn't have to be in the past or in the future. It can just reside in the present moment. And this is where concentration and focus can come into the mind. When one has no more stubborn craving, the mind becomes free from strong feelings. This is those pleasant feelings, painful feelings, neither painful nor pleasant. When craving is eliminated, then there's no more discontent feelings because when there's no more stubborn craving, the mind is free, it's liberated from these strong feelings towards the five aggregates of form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness. The mind is no longer clinging to any of these things. It's no longer craving for these things. 
the mind is liberated from the taints. The mind is free from the pollutions. It's no longer clinging. All those ten fetters are eliminated. So the Buddha is describing getting to enlightenment and what that experience is like. And he's describing here that by being liberated, the mind is steady. So when the mind's enlightened, it's steady, it's calm, it's stable. By being steady, the mind is content, right? It's satisfied with what is. By being content, one is not agitated. You understand agitation, you know, irritated, annoyed. So if the mind is steady, it's stable, it's content, it's not agitated. It's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. Being unagitated, one personally attains enlightenment, right? Because the mind is no longer shaken up. The mind is enlightened. Once one understands that the mind is enlightened, they also understand they're no longer going to experience rebirth. Destroyed is birth. They've lived this holy life, meaning they've acquired the wisdom that they needed in order to train the mind and get to enlightenment. They've led the holy life. They're practicing all 10 steps of the tenfold path. It's the eightfold path that you focus on and practice, but by the time you get to enlightenment, you're actually practicing the tenfold path. And you'll be doing that for the rest of your life effortlessly as an enlightened being because the holy life has been lived. You've had all these previous births where you didn't live the holy life and I didn't live the holy life and all these previous births. We were working towards it, but we hadn't actually acquired it. And it's this last life where the mind becomes enlightened that now you've lived the holy life. What had to be done has been done. You've trained your mind. You've done the work. You've acquired the wisdom. You face the struggles. You face the difficulties. What had to be done has been done. There's no more for this state of existence, meaning there's no more going to be any rebirth whatsoever. There's no longer going to be continued existence in the cycle of rebirth. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Uh, it does not appear there are any questions at this time, sir. Okay, this is our last chapter. And this is the Eightfold Path. This is chapter 140. We've encountered this chapter many times in this group learning program or in this Polycanon English study group. And I go through it in exhaustive detail in the group learning program multiple times, multiple ways. What I would like to do rather than reading this chapter, which is what we would normally do for these chapters, is just open up to any questions that you guys might have about any specific step of the Eightfold Path so that you can get clarity on anything, whether it's right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, or right concentration. I'll just open up to any questions that you have on Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Um, I'm not seeing any questions about the Eightfold Path this time, but we do have some uh, more unrelated questions that oh. were asked earlier. Is there okay, so we can look at those questions then. So this Eightfold Path, this is the words of the Buddha, and it's in Volume 1, Chapter 5. And not only are the words of the Buddha in there, but I explain it in a lot of detail. So if anybody's interested in the detail on the Eightfold Path, you can look there. And you can look at the other classes that I've taught where I've explained it in detail. Yes, thank you, sir. This may also give time for some people to type out their questions about the Eightfold Path. 
Um, Petpico on YouTube had asked, um, doesn't the mind reside in the brain? Where does the mind go when we are asleep or when we are considered to be brain dead, sir? Okay, so the brain and the mind are two different things. They're not the same thing. The brain is physical and it controls the physical body. There's a connection between the brain and the mind, but they're not the same thing. Because the brain is physical, the mind is not physical. It's intangible. You can't touch it because there's no physical form for the mind. So you can't point to where the mind is. In Western culture, we tend to point to the head, thinking that that's the mind. But in Thailand, they actually touch the heart. They think about the mind as being inside the heart. There's other cultures that think the mind is outside the body. But in reality, a physical location can't be described or defined because the mind is not physical. So you can't point to the mind. And even if we did know where the mind is, which we don't, because it doesn't exist in any particular place because it's non-physical, but if we did, it doesn't change anything at all. You still need to train the mind. You still need to eliminate the pollution of mind. So the mind is not the brain. Brain is not the mind. There's two different things, even though there's a connection between them. And the mind is non-physical, non-tangible. And you need to train the mind in order to get to enlightenment. Yes, sir. And then as a follow-up question, Pepico asked, mind or matter, the brain? comes first there's the consciousness that exists then there's the egg from the mom there's the sperm from the dad and then now this consciousness or this mind comes together with the physical form the buddha explains this in his teachings where an embryo and a consciousness have to come together he talks about three things that need to come together the mother needs to be in season the union of the mother and father, and then there needs to be a consciousness, right? Another way to say that is the way I described it, is an egg, a sperm, and a consciousness. These three things need to come together in order to create a living being. That's what actually creates the physical form, is that it's the egg, the sperm, and then that's gonna create the body, but then there needs to be a consciousness that comes into the womb at the time of conception, based on the way that the Buddha explains it, is that the mind comes into the womb at the time of conception, and that's what creates this living being now. Thank you, sir. And then also on YouTube, Tonka asks, I notice attachment to existence. I am okay without personal self, but have a craving to exist somehow after death. Any tips on how to deal with that, sir? Yeah, you've got to uh, let it go through contemplating your own death, like I've shared with you before, Tonka, and then not envision what's next. Don't even think about in terms of once this physical body and mind separate, what happens next. Just keep your thoughts and your contemplation on physical death and just being completely comfortable with nothing else being after that. You need to let go of the world, let go of craving this body, existence, and just let it all go. You're still, of course, like I said, gonna maintain this body. You're still gonna be in the world in terms of once you get to enlightenment, you're just gonna exist in the world. But 
whatever happens in the future, it's in the future. Just let it go. There's just no need to worry or hold on or yearn or long for that. Yes, thank you, sir. Mm-hmm. And then on Zoom, Chanpan has a question. In order to attain the first stage of enlightenment, all steps of the Eightfold Path have to be completed precisely, sir, or all eight, all steps of the Eightfold Paths will automatically link together when we start practicing one of the eight. Yeah, so think about these Eightfold Path as being individual dials. And in order to get to enlightenment, you have to dial each one in very, very closely. If one is too less and another one is too much, you're not in the middle. The mind's not in the middle. So you need to dial each one of these dials with right view, right intention, right speech, and so on. They need to be practiced to perfection. And that starts with learning. You need to learn the Eightfold Path, you need to reflect on it and see the truth, and then you need to move it into your practice and get closer and closer to practicing that Eightfold Path to perfection. Once you're practicing the Eightfold Path to perfection, now you're not making any decisions that are unwise. You're making all wise decisions based on the Eightfold Path, you're practicing it to perfection. But the mind is not yet enlightened yet. You then have to practice that Eightfold Path for an extended period of time in order to burn off all your unwholesome results of your old decisions. Because if you could snap your fingers today and practice the Eightfold Path to perfection, which you can't do that, but if you did and you snapped your fingers and you could practice the Eightfold Path to perfection, you still made unwholesome decisions in the past that are going to come back to affect you. So now, once you're practicing the Eightfold Path to perfection, any old decisions that you made that are coming back and you're experiencing those results, you're now handling them through the Eightfold Path to extinguish this unwholesome karma rather than continuing to generate unwholesome karma through unwise decisions. So let's just say I cheated on my taxes two years ago. And now in that two-year period, I'm practicing the Eightfold Path to perfection. And now practicing that Eightfold Path to perfection, the government says to me, hey, you cheated on your taxes. You owe us $5,000. Okay, now I'm practicing Eightfold Path. I need to extinguish this gamma. Knowing that I cheated on my taxes two years ago, if I run from that and I try to not pay that, then the government's going to keep chasing after you and wanting that money. The interest is going to go up. Penalty fees are going to go up. So you need to take that into consideration that maybe I should pay this and that will extinguish it so that then it will no longer come back to bother me. They won't cancel my passport. They won't put me in jail. They won't do all these other things. Whereas if I just try to run from it, which an enlightened being, someone who's practicing the Eightfold Path wouldn't do. They wouldn't run from their problems. They're going to confront them and extinguish it. So even if you're practicing the Eightfold Path to perfection, you're still going to be experiencing the results of your old decisions. And now you're handling those decisions through the Eightfold Path and extinguishing any decisions. So if you chose a certain life partner and that life partner is maybe aggressive or hostile or bitter, um, resentful, You're going to need to resolve that because that's an old decision. Even if you are practicing the Eightfold Path to perfection, your life isn't going to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy 
if you have this aggressive, hostile, resentful person that you're living with. You're going to need to extinguish that, and there's multiple ways to do that. In other things that we have in our life, we need to create a life where we're no longer making unwise decisions that are leading to unwholesome results, but instead we're having wise decisions that lead to wholesome results. And this connects back to Tonka's question and other questions that I often hear from students is oftentimes it's like, okay, I'm still craving for the world. How do I let this go? Well, there's no way to just snap the fingers and train the mind to let go of the world and craving to exist. Instead, it's bringing your practice up to the Eightfold Path, practicing that for an extended period of time, and the mind is gradually transformed to now let go of these things. It's not an instantaneous thing. So if you've just been learning for six months or a year or two years, you're working on bringing your practice up to the Eightfold Path, getting it closer and closer to that, which includes the mental discipline. Then you practice that for an extended period of time, experiencing all the unwholesome results of past decisions, but now handling it in a different way. And you're training the mind to gradually eliminate craving, desire, attachment, things like craving existence. And there just needs to be an accumulation of enough decisions where you've decided to meditate, you've decided to learn, you've decided to ask questions, you've decided to now handle things in a different way. As discontentedness is arising, you're becoming more and more aware of it, cutting that off and letting it go. And gradually, slowly but surely, all of these decisions to learn and practice the teachings culminate into the mind becoming more and more peaceful. And that just takes gradual training, gradual practice, and gradual progress, which we just talked about in the chapters from the Buddha. Thank you, sir. Mm-hmm. Um, Chantana is following up to ask, uh, how do I know if I reach the first stage of enlightenment? So this is what we're, I'm going to be teaching as part of the retreat in America. If we end up having that retreat, it's going to be at the end of July. And I'm also having a retreat here in Thailand in August, where I'm going to be teaching how to get to the first stage of enlightenment and how to determine if the mind is in the first stage of enlightenment. It's not a two minute answer. It takes a lot of teaching to explain to you how you know this. In general, there's going to be significantly diminished discontentedness. Specifically, the personal existence view, the doubt and wrong behavior and observances, those three fetters will be eliminated. But how to determine if that's all occurred, it's going to take this retreat of me teaching you and helping you to understand it. But in general, there's going to be this diminishing of discontentedness. And the reason why there's that diminishing is because the person has eliminated the first three fetters. But to learn how to identify if those first three fetters are eliminated is going to take a few hours for me to explain as part of the retreat that I'm having in the USA. And there's going to be one here in Thailand as well. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. Um, Another question from Chantana. While we are practicing the Eightfold Path in daily life, would it be possible that the mind goes to the first stage of enlightenment while we are not meditating? You would need to be meditating in order to get to the first stage of enlightenment because the Eightfold Path 
is the eight factors that lead to the jhanas, those preliminary phases that the mind goes through before the first stage of enlightenment. And right concentration is meditation. So a person's going to need to do a certain amount of meditation to accumulate the benefits to bring all of these factors into fulfillment, which is what the Buddha describes as you bring these factors up, you dial them in to fulfillment. And then when you're practicing them for an extended period of time, the mind will start experiencing the jhanas. This is like starting to get glimpses of what enlightenment is like. It's like the light bulb flickering. And then there's going to need to be conscious decision to eliminate those first three fetters of personal existence view, doubt about the teachings or doubt, and wrong behavior and observances. It's not going to happen by mistake. So there's going to need to be a combination of many things, not just meditation, but also right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, all these other teachings. If someone's just meditating and they're not practicing right speech, they're not going to get to the first stage of enlightenment. Or if someone's just practicing right speech and they're not meditating, they're not going to get to the first stage of enlightenment. All eight of these factors need to be practiced, bringing them up closer and closer to perfection. That wrong behavior and observances, the wrong behavior would be to be not practicing the Eightfold Path. If there's any part of the Eightfold Path that one is not practicing, then they still have wrong behavior. That's part of that fetter. Wrong observances is the rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. If someone believes that that's what it takes to get to enlightenment, they're not in the first stage of enlightenment. So that third fetter of wrong behavior and observances is related to the Eightfold Path. And the Buddha is saying you need to be practicing the Eightfold Path in order to get to the first stage of enlightenment. And then once you're practicing the Eightfold Path to perfection and the mind moves through the jhanas, you eliminate those three fetters and you get to the first stage of enlightenment, all you need to do from there is eliminate the other seven fetters. You're already practicing the full path to perfection, essentially, by that point, pretty much. Not 100% perfected, but you at least have the basics of the full path perfected because the full path is teaching to a certain level of detail. And then there's other teachings outside of that that as you go to the second, third, and fourth stage of enlightenment, that you're going to be deepening your understanding of this path and practicing them in more detail. Yes, thank you, sir. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does not appear that we have any other questions at this time, sir. All right. Well, thank you all for your participation in today's class. I appreciate all your questions. It's obvious that you guys are deeply investigating and rolling up the sleeves and getting into these teachings. It's absolutely wonderful to hear these kind of questions that you guys are really digging into these teachings because that's what it takes in order to get to enlightenment. You won't get to enlightenment by mistake. It's going to be very intentional, a lot of work, but that work's going to pay off. And you just do it gradually, little by little. You're going to need to dig in, read, meditate, ask questions, attend classes, ask for guidance, and these kind of things. So thank you guys for your dedication, your determination, and your diligence to learning and practicing. Tomorrow in the group learning program, we're in chapter 22, which is titled Mental Health, A Modern Day Delusion. 
I'm going to refresh your memory on the three universal truths and the four noble truths. This is really helpful to hear those multiple times. And then I'm going to help you understand this whole area of mental health and certain things that we consider to be a brain defect and a mental illness. I'm going to help you understand that it's actually not a brain defect or a mental illness. It's just that the mind is untrained. And when you understand this, then you can actually train the mind and eliminate things that you or your family members might have been told that you're mentally ill and your brain is defective. That's wrong view. You can actually understand right view and that your brain isn't defective. It just needs to be trained. The mind needs to be trained in order to get this pollution out of the mind. And once it does that, it can function optimally. And then on Wednesday, we're going to be doing loving kindness meditation together. So you're welcome to join for our Wednesday class as well. So thank you all for attending class. We'll see you in a future class. Have a very wonderful and lovely rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.